what motivates you, what drives you, what energizes you at the beginning of the day, what encourages you to get up in the morning and start the day and say, I'm really excited about today. And what tasks did you do in that day when you get ready for bed at night? What tasks in the end of the day do you look back and smile and think, oh, yeah, that, that's really cool. I can't believe we did that. And which ones give you worry? And if you begin to understand your motivations, your passions, your heart, then you'll, you will find your way into the position that you belong in. Mm. And I firmly believe that our org charts, though necessary, give the image that the people on top are more important than the people on the bottom. And I don't work that way. I think everyone in an organization is important. And I can't do my job if the people who have tasks don't do their job. A baseball team is great, but if you don't have a catcher, you're not going to win games. So the pitcher is not more important than the catcher. And if you don't have a first baseman there, you can have all the greatest outfielders in the world, and you're going to lose the game because you're missing one, one piece of it. All you have to do to get into a great conversation with Mark Stivers is ask him about the jobs he has held in his life. From park ranger to addiction counselor to planner to professional manager, he has seen and experienced the world and brings his unique perspectives to his work. He has explored diverse opportunities and developed a number of talents. As I think about our efforts to build a pipeline of young professionals in this field, I imagine Mark's story is one that will resonate with people who are guided by a strong desire to build healthy communities. This interview is part of an early series of interviews we did inside the Pioneering Change community in 2021 before I began this podcast. Let's pick up with his work in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania as a planner. You were at Lancaster County as a planner in the planning department. Correct. And then I left there. I worked for an engineering firm doing transportation planning and environmental work. I did phase one environmental studies and not worked with the transportation engineers to design corridors and networks and do signal timings, et cetera. Then came back to the county and worked as a senior planner there. Took a nine-year hiatus and my first wife and our two daughters and I moved over to Amsterdam, Holland, That's where... We worked with the faith-based community over there for nine years, working with teams, how to work and function cross-culturally, as well as got trained as an addiction counselor and worked with addicts and homeless people on the street in Amsterdam for nine years. So then we moved back. I, I worked again for the county and then was offered a position at East Hempfield Township as their planning director, worked there for seven years then took over as the manager for Mannheim Borough, worked there three years, and then my current wife and I moved to Florida to be closer to her family. And I know people are shocked to hear this. We moved back from Florida. <laughs> it just wasn't us. We, we just didn't love it. Some people say we landed on the wrong coast. We were on the East Coast. Some people say the West Coast, the Tampa side's better. Her family's all on the East Coast. We stayed there about five years. And, and in March of this year, Moved back up to Pennsylvania. And took a job at Columbia Borough 
in Lancaster County. Very blessed to have landed a great job here in this amazing town of Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a journey. And I think you're just in the right spot and they are so lucky. They are so lucky to get you. you. This, what an amazing combination of experiences that, that you've had. And I guess my first question on the professional transitions, it's really, for me, I'm very curious as to how your other experiences. Now, I also have in my notes here that you were a volunteer for Habitat for Humanity. Was that in Florida? That, yeah, down in Florida. Uh, yeah. And so that work as well as the work that you did at Amsterdam must have formed your thoughts and your ideas about what it, you wanted to bring into the world in terms of your potential. What did the, those experiences bring to your ideas about community or your ideas about being a professional manager? So I, I look at everything I've done in my life has led me to this point. And there have been very difficult times. There have been very good times, but all of that has helped form who I am today. It was over at our, our market house, which we were very excited to be reopening here in, in Columbia and in May of this year and was, you know, talking to some people and my career really started on a completely different track. I was a park ranger and in the maintenance team for a state park down in Maryland. And at that time, my career goal was to avoid people entirely, become a park ranger at a national park somewhere, live in one of those remote stations and talk to the bears and the trees and the fish and avoid people altogether. And then life as it is turns around and I end up in probably the most people oriented job that I can think of. Um, dealing with elected officials and you're dealing with residents and you're dealing with businesses. And I realized that's how I'm wired. I, I like working with people and I have a strong value that I learned in Boy Scouts. And I'm very proud to say that I made it all the way up through being an Eagle Scout that you leave a place better than you found it. So that got drilled into us as Scouts that when we went into a campsite, we always did an improvement project and our scout leaders, one of them, which my dad, drilled that into us is that you always leave people in place better than you found them. You don't burn bridges, you build relationships, you build teams, and that will get you through life. And those values have carried me through all those different steps. So you take a job at the county and it was really good, but I was asked to look at, hey, do you want to come over to the private sector? I had a chance to work in the private sector, but I realized that's not me. I'm not wired that way. Some people do really great. My wife now, I, I sucked her into the dark side of going into the, the public sector and she hated it. And she's back on the private side now as a landscape architect. I can't do the private side. I love the public side. So in, in looking at my career move, I came back to the county because I like working because it's the right thing to do. And I like doing things because I can make something better and I get paid the same. So I am motivated to work harder because I am making improvements to systems, not harder because I might get extra money. When I moved from East Tenfield to Mannheim, a lot of people looked at me as why would you go to a town like that when you're in this really prestigious position in East Tenfield Township? And I said, because 
that's a community that I can invest in and we can see change in the three years that I worked there. It's not me. It's the team we had there just did a phenomenal job and we got a whole lot done in a short amount of time. Had very similar experiences down in Florida where you get the right people in the right position who are passionate about their job. They're going to work hard and they're going to do a great job doing what they do. And I've always said it in my career, I don't, I never want to be an elected official. I would never want that role, that position, but I love making elected officials look good in the fact that they can make good decisions in public meetings because they've been fed good information. So that's, that's where my whole career has led me to here, where I can inform the borough council here things that I suggest or things that I bring forward that are going to help improve this community. They make the final decisions. They're the ones elected by the people to drive these things forward. And me and my team will carry out the goals and policies they set and feed back to them decisions they make to forward those goals. So I look at it that way. It's a neat system, but it then it draws from everything I've learned up to this point. Well, what about, I wonder, it's fascinating to me, what you bring to this, I am imagining that in the fact that you're able to see possibilities, so that is the first piece. But the second is you are getting input from different directions. So your ideas are not like Mark Stiver's ideas as much as they are a synthesis of what you are hearing or what you feel has some momentum or that is something that is a skill of itself. It, it must be, you know, and I think back to that park ranger who just wanted to go to that remote place. You were a person that was taking in all the nature around you. And so you've progressed yeah. through taking in all of the community in terms of feeling the vibes or I, I, I might be putting too many words here, but does that resonate? So I heard a good, great example one that. A, a good leader is not your first pair trumpet player, but your good leader is the conductor. And I might not play any instruments at all, but if, if I have the ability to take people who have all this gift and talent and ability and get them all to play the same song and the same key at the same rhythm, that's the sound that people are going to remember. They're not going to, they're not going to remember me per se. They're going to remember this incredible sound, this incredible effort, this incredible energy that came out of this community. And I had a leader over in Amsterdam teach me that the best leaders in the world are the ones who, when they leave, there is no gap in the effort that's being done in the place they were. So if I can be here, 10 years and I can step away and I've been able to impart the vision and the goals and the talent and the skills and the passion to keep it going. I'll, hopefully I'll be menaced, but the community won't fall apart because it's not dependent upon me. If I create a system where the entire system is dependent upon me and I leave, I've created a system designed to fail. If I create a system and help build a system that I can empower and energize to do their job. When I walk away and somebody else steps in, the system won't know the difference. Mm -hmm. And that's my, 
that is an amazing vision. I, I can see how that might be. Again, you're not putting yourself in the center, in the sense of there are some who feel like it's the personality who drives the change, but that's in fact, in your case, it is the ability to bring up other people around you. That's what I hear you saying. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I cannot leave though this, the work that you have done in Amsterdam and perhaps with the Habitat for Humanity. Correct me if I see this in the wrong light, but I think of Columbia at a crossroads. I think of Columbia yeah. Borough as both people that have been there for a long time and may not have all of the resources that would be available in other suburban areas, for instance. And then you have another part of Columbia who is like interested in investing and developing and their interests are in a much different direction. How do you balance those two interests? That, that's my favorite part. I, I, I think, and this will tie in my experiences in, in Amsterdam a bit, is when you learn different cultures and when you see the strengths and gifts of different cultures, you begin to see them differently and you, you stop ranking and labeling and you start absorbing and finding the good and the strength around it. I think every person, every culture, every region of the earth has strength that it brings to the system as a whole. And there is no one country, culture, person who has the keys to all the things that make this world turn. And so it's taking your mindset from Columbia Borough is only this big to a global mindset to say that, you know what, there, there are cultures here that, that bring in a, a different way of doing life. And just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. Let's find out what they do. For example, I love the Latino culture. If you want to go to a fun party, you want to be hoarse and you want to scream and yell and dance then go to a Latino party because they know how to celebrate. They know how to enjoy life and they get out there and you'll learn that family is missing critical for them. They, they depend on family. You go, you look at the Asian cultures and the oldest children, their job is to care for their parents. They don't send them to a nursing home. They don't send them away. I had, team members who were in the middle of doing incredible work. And they said, I have to go home now. My mom is sick and I'm the oldest. They don't even think twice about it. They're like, that's my job. That's my role. I, I'm the oldest. I have to go take care of my parents. And they go back and they take care of them. Boy, we can learn a lot from that. When I was at the county, we, we coined this term of Amish suburbia. When you drive around in the rural areas, you see an Amish farm and there's six houses on it. That's the, the parents, the son, the, this. And they live together as a family unit and they work together. I was down in Switzerland and you see these farming communities and all the homes are in the center so that they can, one person, while they farm, this person bake and this person make 
candles or something. And this person over here makes this. So the community is here in the center of this circle. And on the outside of it is all the farm fields. So if somebody's sick, I'll say, I'll do my farm field in the morning and I'll do yours in the afternoon. And they don't think twice about it. And what culture is that out of Switzerland? That's where the Amish came from. The Amish came out of northern Switzerland and went into Germany and Holland and came over and they brought that we are community with them. So what is America? I know I'm getting way off on a tangent, but oh, I, I, hate the tangent. <laughs> I, I hate the phrase melting pot because melting pot means we all have the same color and we all look the same. We're not the same. We're like a big salad that we have different ingredients with different flavors and different people like different salads, but salads don't get put into a blender and made all one color. They, they remain individual parts and pieces and flavors in a bigger bowl that then become the culture in that city. So Colombia right now is a certain mix of people and cultures, but that's constantly changing. I was, blessed to be in, in Amsterdam when they actually celebrated the fact that the white, tall, blonde Dutch person became the minority in Amsterdam. And they celebrated it. You go to the foreign police and they'd have flags all around the top banner of their offices of people and countries and cultures they've helped. And they're like, is your flag up there? Can, can you wanna, do you want to put a flag up for me so I can have your flag up there? They celebrated diversity. They celebrate having different cultures and people in there. So we need to get back to that. We need to get back to celebrating culture, celebrating people, and celebrating who we are. are you, were you born in Lancaster? Are you a Lancaster boy? <laughs> were you born on Mars? No, I was actually born outside of Washington, D.C., down in Montgomery County, Maryland. Oh, my goodness. I was born in Columbus, Ohio, so I'm not Lancaster, although when I moved to Pennsylvania and I started uh, my business, everybody in Lancaster liked me because they liked my name, Hess. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but <laughs> I always was able to, pardon? It's a very common name around yeah, here. very common name. I had never heard the name before I came to Pennsylvania, but what I loved about Lancaster, just to go to the salad point... <laughs> is when Lancaster was founded. It was on these principles of having freedom to organize in your own communities. And to, to a large extent, I think it's still known for having a very successful Latin culture, right? Mm -hmm. the, I'm not sure about the Asian community, but I, I, it seems to me that there's still an ability to thrive in the Lancaster County because of these sort of principles and traditions that exist. So I, I, I yeah. you're in a good place in that respect. And I, I love that I talk to my daughters and they're grown now, they're 29 and 27. And they will still today tell you that they don't consider themselves American because their heart language is split between Dutch and English. They both are now fluent in Spanish. My oldest daughter speaks and can write in some Arabic and is teaching herself French. Oh my goodness. And Americans look at that and maybe I'll offend some people here, but there is a joke in Europe is that anyone who speaks three languages is trilingual. Anyone who speaks two languages is bilingual. Anyone who speaks one language is American. We are criticized, yes, a lot for our insistence that be the primary language 
which of course, most people around the world do learn English. And so we think maybe we don't sure. learn, but we do learn to think differently when we learn other languages. I certainly know when I travel and learn other languages, I, I am, the curiosity is just always drives me to understand how they think. And you can't understand how people think unless you learn their language. Correct. And so I learned over there that true culture shock doesn't come in the first two weeks of experiencing a new language. True culture shock, as we use the term, usually incorrectly, is when you've been there for a number of years. And it took me about two years over in, in Holland to, to realize that that the culture isn't something to fight. The culture is something to embrace. So I, I explained to people that the biggest culture shock we had wasn't moving to Holland. It was moving back to America because you had become acculturated into a different culture and you move back to a country that you know, and you're not that person anymore. You're not that pure American anymore. Your worldview has changed. And then you experience culture shock because you realize that you're driving down the road and the person on the right doesn't have the right of way, but they have for nine years. You drive down a road and you look for the road classification symbol because that tells you the speed limit and whether or not you can get off and get on and, and regulate it. You come back to a country where the speed limit changes three times within two miles on a street. Mm -hmm. And you don't have that. You're like, that doesn't make sense. I'm on the same road. Why is the speed changing? Yeah. So it's those kind of things that when you become immersed into a different culture, you learn it differently. And language, music, and food, they'll teach you, are the three main things that define a culture. I Every culture been, has their... I have not been to Amsterdam. So is it... I, it's on my list of places to visit. Is there a lot of... Is there a blend of culture? there very much so the the Dutch culture itself is blended it's not a pure culture it's part spanish part german and part british english so that those three cultures made up the Dutch culture mm -hmm. when you think about your work here because there is certainly these similar issues how do you how do you think about our communities how can we make our communities stronger in terms of their mm. Welcoming of different cultures. One of the things that I learned down in, in my time in Florida is when you get people involved in stuff and you engage them rather than force rules on them, they take an ownership in, in what you're doing. Example is we work with this fantastic organization down there called Community Greening. And the vision for Community Greening was to improve the quality of life by including the natural space around people. And the visionaries behind this were these two guys who lived cross-culturally and then met each other and realized that they could speak a different language by simply engaging people in their work. One of the first projects that we did was to plant this orchard in a very poor part of a town called Delray Beach in, in, in South Florida. And we didn't go in there and tell them 
what to do. We went in there and asked them what they wanted. And they said, oh, we used to have papayas here. We used to have this stuff here. Boy, it'd be fun to have that again. So they went out, raised the money, brought the trees in, and handed these teams of youth and kids and older people shovels and said, where do you want your trees? And they went out and they planted their trees. And we knew it was a success because one of the hurricanes came through and we ran out there to check the grove. And all the kids in the neighborhood were out there and they're like, back off city, this is our grove, we've got it, we'll call you if we need help. And at that point we knew that we had crossed the line and they had taken ownership and they were no longer going around doing graffiti and destroying things. They put their time and energy into protecting their grow so that they can pick food for their family. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a success story of how you engage people and engage cultures. And you don't tell them how to live. You walk in and you ask them, what can I do to help you? You know, you don't give somebody a fish, you teach them how to fish. And sometimes we need to go in and learn how to fish their way instead of us thinking that we know everything. Did any of this thinking or, excuse me, approach come from your planning background? Yes. But I realized, I think I learned more about planning, not necessarily doing planning work than I did doing great planning work here in in Pennsylvania. If we look at planning being building buildings and building roads, I think we missed the point. I think if we understand that planning is about people and bringing harmony between people and the the environment that we live in, then we, we approach it differently. And instead of saying that we have to build only single family homes or we must build anything under 10 units an acre density as a waste of space, then we're forcing ideas on people that isn't their comfort zone. For years in the 50s and 60s, we planners realized that we need to build government housing for people so they can live. What did we do 30 years later? We tore it all down because it didn't work. Then we decided we were going to force people to live together and we were going to make the Asians live with the Hispanics, and they're going to be right next to the Africans who are going to be partners with the Americans. Guess what? We like to live with people that are like us. So all these social experiments that we do to force our values and beliefs on people rarely work. But if we set up an environment that people can thrive and the market can do its job, then cities can thrive because I don't have to create an artificial city or environment. I just have to create an environment where people want to live and let them do what they want. And that's success. That's how you get cultures to work together because people want to ultimately be proud of who they are and what they do. Mm -hmm. And if you can instill that pride in people and, and instill that connection of neighborhoodness, to them, then suddenly people are working together as as neighbors who previously never talked. Sorry about that. When I lived in Baltimore, they had these issues where they were moving people out of neighborhoods to develop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't know to what extent that's gone on in Lancaster. I think it's gone on to some extent, but I don't see quite the same. But I've got to imagine it's happening in some of the areas of town where there is development happening, like improvements going on downtown. And so the, the nasty word that people don't like to talk about is, is gentrification. If you come in and change a neighborhood and by doing so force certain people out of it, which in some situations has to happen in order to have any level of economic growth. But if you can then provide housing for those people that may be displaced by this change and they can stay in the community that they love, then you maintain that diversity of the community, which I think creates a healthier community. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the key is really recognizing the value of that. And that the planning, that the planning does encompass that ideal, even if it's doing things that are different and feels different to those inhabitants that may end up moving as a result. I, I want- you're learning. You're learning. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. So you, you learn in planning school that the enabling legislation that allows us to do what we do says that our role and responsibility is to regulate and protect people's health, safety, and welfare. Mm-hmm. And if for those three things, and that our role is not really to go beyond health, safety, and welfare then you realize a smaller zoning code with limited but good and enforceable regulations is better than a 400-page tome that no one can find anything in. Right. And I don't need to regulate the daylights that have everyone and tell them what color their curtains need to be and then how tall their grass needs to be. I need to make sure that people's living style isn't reducing the value of the homes next to them. Mm-hmm. As long as the them are maintaining or growing in value with everybody else around it, then what you do inside your four walls becomes less important to me and how you interact with the community becomes more important. Yeah. I don't know which way to go with my next question. I want to shift to your role as a manager, which is a much broader, you have to think about other uh, sort of concerns. But if I were to move from that issue that the issue of around gentrification in the role of manager, what I often encounter in, in communities is a need for like rental inspections, like where the landlords are not living in the town, but there's these properties that are in the town. Is that something that you deal with in Columbia? Constantly. And we do rental inspections. We also do new tenant walkthroughs, we call them, where if you're switching out tenants, we go back through, make sure that all the safety equipment that was put in during your inspection wasn't ripped off the walls, changed, taken out, looked at. So public health and safety, that's what we focus on. And are the units safe? Are we putting residents into safe units? Are they putting 47 people in a dwelling designed for 10? That's a problem. So those are the kind of things we do look at here. And, and we do that constantly. And we hold all property owners, whether they're owner-occupied or rentals, to the same standard. Mm -hmm. Your property is your property, but we're not going to let you suck the value out of the the building that you come in and then leave. 
we're going to hold you to the same account as your neighbor next door who owns their house and takes pride in it. And then if you want to work with us, we'll work with you. If you want to snub your nose at us and say you can't do anything, then you get the full weight of my 30 years of experience in doing this. And next thing you know, you're standing in front of the magistrate staring down a $600 fine. And I, I've always liked the term code compliance over code enforcement because the goal is compliance, not to force people to do it, but we do that if we have to, and we're not afraid to do it, but I'd much rather pick up the phone or go out to somebody's house, talk to them and say, okay, let's give you 60 days and let me call Jamie Widener from Columbia Life Network. And let's see if we can get a team of volunteers to come over and you can't do everything that needs to be done. So let's get you some people who can do it. And now we have youth coming out doing their community service time and they're helping paint a fence and fix a wall. And we got dads coming together to build decks. And what suddenly is that same thing as those kids down in, in Florida, kids are walking down the street on the way to school and go, oh, hey, see that deck over there? I helped build that last summer. And they're proud of it. They're proud of who they are and what they did. And suddenly the desire to do disruption goes away because, hey, that's my deck. I helped work on that project. Right. And community pride grows. That's full circle, Mark. That's really... Full circle. Yeah. Yeah. And that's engagement. <clears throat> I have to ask you, because this is uh, <clears throat> related on this issue, how often do you bring in law enforcement to help you? Is it last resort? I don't know. No, I'm a huge fan of the community policing model. And I think as people get to know the officers and learn that they're not there just to arrest you and their, their, their whole goal isn't to slap handcuffs on you and haul you off the jail, but their goal is similar to mine, similar to others is to improve this community. Then it's a different attitude and it's a different position. I just met the new superintendent of the, the school district here, Ashley Rizzo, and she comes here out of, out of Lancaster City with the same attitude of how can we improve this community? How can we make it better? And one of the things we talked about was the school resource officer, who, if you listen to some of the news stories, they're the worst thing that ever happened. You talk to the kids in the school, and they'll tell you that, yeah, I beat that guy one-on-one -on -one in the basketball court after school the other day. Fun. It's bragging right. Yeah, I, the two of us took that cop and we showed them how to play hoops. And then the next day they get beat and they realize, oh, he was better than he thought. Oh my gosh, he beat me. All right, next, next Tuesday I'm taking you out. And next, this club starts and these kids all want to get together and they want to play basketball against this police officer. And when I was in Mannheim, we did a, a fundraiser where the police department and I had a benefit softball game against the boys football team. And what? There was standing room only. The bleachers were packed. Everybody standing around. You had a bunch of people saying, take the cops down, beat them. And the Mannheim Barons are unbeatable. And then when we beat them at the end of the game, you know what everyone did? They all ran out into the field. They celebrated. They laughed. And we had hot dogs and, and, and food and we ate together. And the next day I'm walking around town and you see these kids, hey, nice hit, man. That was a good one. And again, you've taken away the mystique of authority and you've put into it humanness and human scale. 
We started this program and it wasn't my idea at all. The police chief brought it in and we're talking about doing it here, but we did it also in Mannheim where if they saw a student riding their bike with their helmet on, riding the right direction and doing everything correctly, they flipped on their lights, they pulled the kid over, they ran out of their car, celebrated, popped fire things and, and did all these fun things and handed them a coupon for free ice cream. Do you want to guess how many kids were suddenly riding around town with their helmets on, safely crossing every intersection, hoping they got pulled over by a cop so they can get free ice cream? That's novel. We, we learn by encouragement. Encouragement teaches us more than discipline ever will. Mm-hmm. You learn when you're training a dog, when he runs away from you and you're so mad and you're yelling at him, when he comes back, you got to praise him. You know what? The last action he did was right. So you reaffirm the positive, And the next time he calls you, he goes, wait a minute. If I turn around and run back home again, I'll get head pets and scratches and biscuits. You know what the dog does? He run as far because he wants that praise. So he'll come turn around and come back. And then he's really running because he wants to be close enough to you to not miss the treat and the blessing. Yeah. If we understand that people grow through affirmation and discipline is only as a last resort as needed, then trust is built and you have a whole different environment of people trying to succeed because they want to do well and be praised, not they're afraid of getting in trouble. That's great. That's, that's my management style. I don't micromanage. I hate micromanagers. I don't understand people who hire good people and then do their job for them. I don't have the time to do all that. I don't have the time to do my job. But if you hire good people and you motivate them and you encourage them and you build them up and you give them the tools they need, those are the people that are going to thrive in their job because they take value and pride in who they are and what they do. Mm-hmm. That's that makes my job. Has to be. Yeah. So that's how I, taking all this stuff of everything I've learned up to, to this point, that's how I've learned to say, let me motivate people. Let me encourage people. If you want to get somebody off of drugs, you want to tie this whole big crazy mess together. This blew my mind when I studied this in addiction counseling. You realize their addiction is just a medication that hides their pain. If you go in and simply take their medication away, they'll never heal. If you heal their wounds, if you heal the very thing that's causing them pain, they stop medicating and they stop their addiction. The whole theory is backwards to how you normally think. I can take an act that put him in jail and yell at him and tell him he's a horrible person. Guess what? He's kicking himself harder than I ever can. He's got more fame than he knows what to do with. If I sit down on the street and say, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Do you want to talk for a bit? And say, tell me about your life. And they can spill in their guts. That heals people. Mm-hmm. And when people begin to have confidence in themselves, when they begin to believe in themselves, they'll do better. Yeah. My wife and I just bought a Peloton so we can start riding and getting into tape. Did you actually have every word? I'm hearing that there was a delay on the delivery over, over the holidays. There was a big delay. It took us, I think, four weeks to get it, but not bad. The irony of it all is it came two days before I got COVID. So I got my new bike. I looked at it and I got sick. And there I sat there and stared at it like, oh, someday, my friend. But you get on the bike and you program in your class and you take it. And the instructors, all they do is 
you think you're tired? Do you think you want to stop? Go to a little bit more. You can do this. Don't stop now. Just do a little bit more. If you can't do this, take your resistance, turn it down a little bit, and work on your cadence. Just ride. Work on your rhythm. All right, now, slow your rhythm down and push yourself a little bit. Turn up your resistance and build that muscle up a little bit again. And the first day you get off and you can't walk. Then three days later, you get off and you're like, wait a minute. I'm not aching. I'm not hurting. I've, my God, I think I've built up a muscle here. I can now do something that I, that I thought I couldn't do. You know why? I wasn't yelled at and told I'm stupid and you can't do it. I was given that seed of encouragement to say, you know what? Come on, Mark, you can do that a little bit more. Just push it a little harder. You want to sit down now? Give me five more seconds. And that kind of confidence and motivation carries through. I don't care who you are, where you are, what you're doing. When you feel good about yourself and you can, you feel like you can do better, you're going to motivate yourself to work harder and do more. Yeah, I think you could apply that philosophy to what you were saying earlier about just as a community, as a collective community. When a community feels better about itself, it's going to do a little better job and maybe be more welcoming and open to some new changes. Correct. And that, that's exactly how you apply it as taking this instant into being a manager of a town that a lot of people have a lot of negative names for. I, I walk through this town and I see all the good that this town is and can become. And when people start taking that pride and they, and they realize it and they start celebrating who they are and what they do, they do the work, not me. They're the ones who turn this town around. I'm just their cheerleader telling them they can do just a little bit more. Yeah. I want to ask a question here, and this will move us into the, the last section here. The question is normally around what do you think should be preserved and what do you think should be progressed forward? If I could ask it just a little bit differently with you, this is an experiment. Mm -hmm. You can answer however you'd like. But my thought is to say, if you were looking at young, a young professional to come up through mm -hmm. and you could say, Here's what I think is the ideal young professional to come into the managers. What are the kinds of qualities that you think embody what's important for a manager to have as at the core and what's important for the manager to be able to do to help move the next generation of local government professionals? That's an awesome question. I am a, a strong believer in, in servant leadership. I, I think you, you set the example by doing what you want your people to do and not sitting in your office, simply directing them and, and using words, but actions speak louder than words, in my opinion. So I believe you set the example. If you live and work the way you want them to, Encourage them to find their strength. What motivates you? What drives you? What energizes you at the beginning of the day? What encourages you to get up in the morning and start the day and say, I'm really excited about today? And what tasks did you do in that day when you go to, when you get ready for bed at night? What tasks in the end of the day do you look back and smile and think, oh, that, that's really cool. I can't believe we did that. And which ones give you worry? But if you begin to understand your motivations, your passions, your heart, then you'll, you will find your way into the position that you belong in. Mm. And I firmly believe that 
are org charts, though necessary, give the image that the people on top are more important than the people on the bottom. And I don't work that way. I think everyone in an organization is important. And I can't do my job if the people who have tasks don't do their job. Baseball team is great, but if you don't have a catcher, you're not going to win games. So the pitcher is not more important than the catcher. And if you don't have a first baseman there, you can have all the greatest outfielders in the world, and you're going to lose the game because you're missing one, one piece of it. So if you know what your system is supposed to do, and I am blessed the fact that in Lancaster County, I had the opportunity to study transportation planning and economic development and environmental planning and housing and everything. So if I know a little bit about all those different areas and I can hire people in who can be the experts in it and, and they can do their jobs and then we can work together, then everyone's empowered to do their job. And instead of saying, look what I did, you pull the whole team together and you say, as a team, look what we accomplished. So that's where I go back to. I think the role of the manager is not to do all the work and, and take all the credit. I say it the opposite way. I'll take all the blame in the public meetings to give all the credit to the staff. I wonder if you, that, that philosophy is a, I think applies to public and private sector, but there's something about public sector that, that I think is very unique. So I, I want to try to just dive in a little bit more. There's going to be communities that are essentially not going to want to change. So that young professional needs to think yeah. about what it is, this goes to your, what you're actually saying, what makes them get up in the morning, what do they go to bed and they're worried about. But in Pennsylvania in particular, we have communities that are just beautiful for the fact that they haven't changed. And we have other communities which are spectacular for the changes that they have made. And so in your mind, as a planner, as a good manager, as a someone who puts up the humans at the center, that means what? That means that we celebrate the fact that we have different kinds of communities in Pennsylvania that are what? In your mind as a professional manager, that's a good thing. Is that right? Yeah. I We celebrate diversity and... People have to understand that every community changes. Change is inevitable. Does, do you help drive the change or is the change driving you? Mm, um, that's good. I love one of, the, one of my favorite quotes is you can never step in the same river twice because the water that you step in is now downstream and you're stepping in different water at different time. Mm -hmm. uh, so everything changes. And even though on the surface it may look similar, there are different people there now, and there's young people who hadn't heard the stories before who are hearing them for the first time. And there's people who've heard the same stories 40 times and need to hear something different. So communities are constantly changing. And I, I teach leaders to not force change on people, but listen to where it's going, listen to the people where they want to go. And become part of the process of encouraging that, that development. Columbia Borough is a great mix of that because 
our history here is so rich to the, from the underground railroad to having being just inches away from being the nation's capital from mm -hmm. taking on Philadelphia coming out here to, to Columbia, to being a, a thriving community to now going through times of struggle to now coming back up again and thriving again. There's people who come here to the town and they almost get a stiff neck walking around because they're like, the architecture here is beautiful. And you've heard that adage that these walls could talk. Well, if we would stop and listen, they do. And if we listen to the stories and we listen to the history of what has taken place here, I think people would be amazed to know what happened here. What took place here that changed history? And, and we can't forget that. But we can't live in the past. We also then say, so where are we going in the future? What's the new thing that's coming here that's going to help create what Columbia is going to be for the next 20 and 30 years? Not forgetting our history, but building on it. Mm -hmm. And if you could just say a few words then about the role of the manager, because it, this takes us back to where we began, actually. But the role of the manager in a place where there is a lot of different ideas. And so what, how do you describe your role in helping the community to find a path forward, like navigating that change? What's the change that we want to be? So I think the, the very first role is being a listener. I learned this in Amsterdam. We used to walk around the city and if you would walk quietly and just listen and not talk and not have earbuds in and not have drowned out the noise, but absorb the noise and listen, you hear what the heartbeat of the city really is. And if we take time to talk to people and not talk at them, but open up the opportunities to listen and really listen and feedback what you hear and then write it all down and give it back to them and say, hey, did I hear you correctly? Then get clear vision of what this city wants to be. One of the best examples, one of the best articles I read on this years ago was, what is your city's DNA? What is the molecule that build your city? And if you try to create a structure on top of that isn't who it is, it'll crumble. But if you take who that city is and humanize it a bit and say, what is your personality city? What do you want to become? And if you're willing to embrace that, then you're not blooming upstream. You're not trying to create a new thing. You're just jumping on the train that's already going in a certain direction and you're helping to get there in, in a more efficient way. So to me, that's the role of a manager, not to bring my ideas in and enforce it on you, but to hear who you are and how can I help you become a better you? Mm. That is wonderful. I have to ask you one last question and you can only pick... Okay. One thing, oh, what's I hate the these. project that has you excited about right now? When you get up in the morning, what's the project that excites you right now? Oh, that was easier than I thought. Our market house. I wasn't here when the, the market house fell apart and shut down. 
And I wasn't here during the planning stages of getting it back up again, but I came in when it was an empty shell and there was a lot of pressure to say, how is this going to be successful? How are you going to make this market house successful? What is going to drive this thing so it can become an, an anchor for this community? And I walk over there now, and I was just over there this afternoon, and you walk through and you look at all the stands and, and you start hearing people running around and kids laughing and screaming and, and kids playing and parents talking and generations mixing and mingling. And I get excited. We, there was concern that the, the reputation of the Columbia Market House was so bad that nobody would want to come. If you listen to the negative, you'll believe that. Mm. And it, it'll be like self-fulfilling prophecy and it'll die. Uh, I walk over there and people walk in and their first reaction is, oh my gosh, what does it, what would it take for me to get in here? That's How can I have a stand in this place? Yeah. How can I be part of this? Because people like being part of something that's successful and something that's exciting and something that's new. So I, every day I... I <laughs> that would explain. I walk through it and then I look around and I see the change and I see the progress and I'll, I'll confess quietly that that I see things that, oh, they missed that spot over there. And I'm trained to both look at details and look at the big picture. So when you walk through with a critical eye, oops, they're missing a chip of the tile there and this grout's missing over here. And you could have painted that corner over here with some cough on the side. But here's the beauty of it. I'll see that. A few other people see it. No one shopping in that market is going to see that stuff. No one's going to care that the floor isn't exactly level. No one's going to care that this is, is a millimeter off over here or this isn't here. You know what they care about? They get to hang out with their friends. They get to eat good food. You get to run around. You get to talk to people. So the energy of, of that coming together is right now the exciting project for me. That's wonderful. I know people are going to be very interested in your background and what you're doing there in Columbia. I learned things today. I had no idea. I'm going to go look up the history of Columbia tonight. <laughs> so I want to say goodbye. We'll end this interview. If you just hang on for a minute then after I stop the recording, I'm going to say a few more things before we go. Okay? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. 